The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. I just want to thank God up front for the ministry of the Word that we were blessed by with Pastor Hunter and David and Matt over the past few weeks. If you're thankful to God for their ministry of the Word, would you please say amen? That was a huge blessing, and I'm really grateful for that. And so we've been out of First Timothy for a little bit, but today we're back in it. I'm praying, I think the Lord is working in my heart to have us preach through Exodus next, after we finish First Timothy, but we're still in First Timothy for about three or four more weeks. And because we haven't been in it for a while, you have your Bible open, I pray, to First Timothy chapter 5. And if you need a pew Bible, it's page 1179. So please take a pew Bible from in front of you and turn to page 1179. Now, if you're trying to remember, what is First Timothy about? If you would look across the page of your Bible to chapter 3... You'll see in verse 14 and 15, and I love when someone gives a thesis or purpose statement. Here's why I wrote this. So look in chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. Here's why God has preserved this breathed out word for us. Paul writes to Timothy directly, but by implication in many ways for us. I hope to come to you soon. This is chapter 3, verse 14. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, Exodus is exciting. That's where we hope to go. You think of sand and sun and sandals and swords and probably other S words as well. But in 1 Timothy, it feels a little bit more like, if we're honest, a policy and procedural manual. It's less exciting for many Christians. And you might view it like you view your work's policy and procedure manual or your car's owner's manual or your nation's constitution, things that you don't really want to look at on a normal weekly basis. But boy, when your car won't start, suddenly that owner's manual feels really important. And I think it's helpful to frame it this way. God has preserved and breathed out for us First Timothy to prevent his church from breaking. These things have been written so that the church of the living God would run the way he wants it to run so that he can do through it what he needs to do through it. When you discover a core piece of information from a document previously thought of as benign, you realize how important it is. Imagine the first time you read your works policy manual, you find out there's vacation time. Or the first time you go to your car's owner's manual and you realize, I'm supposed to change the oil. (laughs) Or the constitution for your nation awakens in your mind that there's a judicial branch. This important piece of information suddenly helps you realize something vital that had otherwise been unknown or overlooked. In today's passage, we're going to read about a key cog in God's church, and it's called elders. This is something sometimes unknown or sometimes overlooked, something of which people may not even be aware, but something of which God in his goodness has written exhaustively. So here in this book, we read something vital for us to know, something easily lost or overlooked. When I thought of that, I thought of King Josiah. Perhaps you know King Josiah became king when he was only eight. And in his 17th year, one of the priests named Hilkiah found the Bible. (laughs) He found the book of the law, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. The whole circumstances are hilarious. In Second Chronicles 34, the priests are bringing the money, the offering, And when they bring the offering to the house of the Lord, what they find there 
is the first five books of the Bible. What a day when the priests discover the Bible. (laughs) Should we not pray for that to continue? When they find the Bible, they bring it to the king. And King Josiah, we read in verse 18, tears his clothes and says, Go concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord poured out against us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord according to all that is written in his book. Now, here's something funny about the way Satan attacks the Bible. I have friends, and I went to seminary with people that went to translate the Bible to people who don't have it in their language. I know missionaries who've smuggled Bibles in to closed countries, but do you know how Satan attacks the Bible in our country? He doesn't attack it through scarcity. He attacks it through superabundance. When you can read it in a hundred translations on your smartphone, it just doesn't seem that distinctively important. And yet to rediscover what God actually says changes everything. So may we this morning not let the Bible be overlooked, but let God speak through it. So the title of today's sermon is Elders in your pew Bible, page 1179. And on your notes that hopefully you received the bulletin when you came in, and even if you didn't, here's the three. I think the text breaks down very simply. God tells us in his word here to do three things pertaining to elders. Number one, honor elders who rule well. Number two, rebuke elders who refuse to repent. And number three, recognize and affirm godly elders. So look with me in God's word as we now see number one, honoring elders who rule well. Verse 17, let the elders who rule well. Already we have key words we have to understand. Who are elders? What are elders? Well, remember elders, we read in 1 Timothy Three are overseers. They are the leaders of the church. We read in First Peter 5, the word elders used interchangeably with pastor or with overseer. Acts 20, it's used interchangeably with pastor or overseer. So who are elders? They are pastors. They are overseers. They are the role that God has given, a gift Christ gave when he ascended for the good of his church. But now notice the language is strong that says the elders should rule well. And by the end of the verse, we'll read which ones rule particularly well. But notice here that God expects that all elders are ruling. What a difficult word to hear as a sinner. Rule? Someone will rule? God will appoint people who rule over me. When I hear that word as a sinner, I'm ready to paint my face blue and yell freedom in my best Scottish accent. How dare someone claim they can rule over me? I am independent and autonomous. It's hard as a sinner to hear the word rule. It's harder as an American. If you've grown up generationally American, in your middle school civics class, you were taught monarchy is evil. Isn't that why we fought a revolution? Oligarchy, aristocracy, those horrible one percenters. We hate the word rule. Why does God use it? Maybe we can just get rid of it. It's, it's the Greek word praestotes. Maybe it can be translated better. Here, I'll tell you what all the translations do. The ESV translates rule. The NASB translates rule. The NIV gets six English words out of this one word, which is quite a bit, but it's still fair. They write direct the affairs of the church. The King James puts rule. The net puts who provide effective leadership forwards out of the one uh, Greek word. And the CSB probably goes the softest and it just writes good leaders. But all those translations at least agree with this. God does appoint some people to lead, to lead his church. 
And there's a succinct group of who these people are, and the Bible calls them elders. Now, my sinful heart, which wants to rankle against any sort of authority, is helped by remembering these two things. Remember that the template of this shepherding is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. So these elders are never to dictate or be dictatorial or to rule with a strong fist. Instead, they're to wash feet, to lay down their life, to give up themselves for the glory of God and the good of their people. But there's a second reason we're helped, and that's the verses that follow. Aren't we about to read underneath number two how we remove elders who do not behave as an elder ought? So this morning we see that God in his goodness actually loves us enough to give good authority for our flourishing. So may our hearts be soft to his good design and may we revere Christ's kingly rule even when it's biblically mediated. All right, so now back to verse 17. Those were just the first few words. Let the elders who rule well be considered. Who's to consider them? Their congregation. What are they consider them of? Double honor. They're to consider them of double honor, particularly this group of elders, those who labor in preaching and teaching. Even just from that verse, we notice some big things. God values his word being preached and taught well. God wants people to allocate their life to that, to labor diligently at that, because it's good for his people. But also we notice even in just this verse, not all elders labor on it in the same way, which means God appreciates the diversity of gifts that he's given to his people. Let me explain that diversity a little bit. So all elders are to rule well. Some labor at preaching and teaching. Now, different denominations have actually carried that out differently. Some, like our Presbyterian brothers and sisters who we love, have taken that to mean there's a hard division between those, that there are some elders and all they do is executive administrative ruling. And then there are other elders and all they do is preach and teach. But we know we can't draw the division that firmly because in chapter 3, verse 2, we read that any elder has to have the ability to teach. So in fact, it can't be two different circles. So what will it look like? Here's what it'll look like if you can picture this in your mind's eye. One circle. In that circle are all elders who all are to rule well. But within that circle, there's a smaller circle. Those whose primary emphasis is preaching and teaching. Now, as the verses follow, they'll explain how the church treats those whose primary emphasis as preaching and teaching, especially if they labor diligently at it. And it says they're to be worthy of double honor. What could that mean? Verse 18 starts to fill it in. So look in verse 18. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. This same word honor was used in chapter 5 to explain the way the church cares for widows who do not have family members who are providing for them. Their church cares for them both in reverence but also in financial support. Verse 18 makes this same point. They're among the team of elders. All of them are responsible to lead, to shepherd. But among that team, some labor at preaching and teaching. And those who do so well should be respected of that focused ministry and supported for that focused ministry. As one translator puts it, respect and remuneration. Now, why would God 
want that done? Why would he want some elders focusing on this work? Well, one reason is to complement the team. Picture Nehemiah and Ezra in the Old Testament. They're both there to help God's people rebuild. Nehemiah's gifting, though, is mainly on the organizational administration, but when it's time to teach, Ezra does the teaching. He has to be set apart to focus on that labor. God wants there to be a greater extent of those who are focusing on the work. Look again in verse 17. The Greek word melista is translated especially by nearly every English translation. That means to a distinctly greater extent. God wants His church to have people devoted and provided so that they can devote to the ministry of the Word. Why? Because the Word of God does the work of God. God, through His Word, builds His people, builds His church, and glorifies His name. So that the work can be done well, there needs to be people who devote primarily at that work. Several years ago, I was reminded of how important it is that when someone has a specific calling, that they're able to divest their energy at that specific calling. I was reminded of this several years ago when um, it was discovered that my mom, on her heart, had a golf ball-sized tumor. That same year had been a difficult year for our family in many reasons, but when that golf ball-sized tumor was discovered on her heart, we went to figure out who the heart surgeon would be, and we settled on Dr. Robinson. When I did some research on Dr. Robinson, there are many wonderful gifts that he may have had that were suddenly unimportant to me. I don't care what his golf handicap is. (laughs) I don't care if he can make balloon animals or if he has a CDL passenger license. His ability to staff and administer doesn't matter to me very much, nor does his sense of humor. One particular thing that he's devoted his life to, I want to know if he's good at it. Can he do a good heart surgery? I was encouraged to know he had done 6,000 and that they were successful. In the same way, this passage is telling us that pastors, elders, have to have among them some who are able to devote their energy to preaching and teaching. This reminds us of something that we've lost in America. Pastors are not to be CEOs who primarily spend their time organizing or administrating. Pastors must have their heart focus on the gift that God has called some pastors to, the preaching and teaching of the Word. And the church all has to support that. Do you know why the church needs to support that? Because it's very hard to protect word ministry in our moment. This past week, uh, we had open house for our kids at school, and one of the teachers was pleading with us as parents to not let our children throughout the week play on tablets or watch television. She said, if at home your children are on tablets or watching television. She said, I've been teaching this class for 27 years, and I can stand on the desk, and I can wave my arms, but there is nothing I can do as exciting as that tablet. Nothing. Her point was, it's hard for me to do word ministry in an image age. It's hard for me to do word ministry in a digital era of entertainment. Now, I don't say that to say it's never been harder or it's harder now. That would be foolish to say historically. Some pastors preached in areas of great illiteracy. But every era has its own challenge. For us, it's hard to have pastors labor at the ministry of word when we're used to many exciting 
alternatives. This week on the news, I was listening to WRAL, and this was Monday morning as I was dropping the kids off to school, and I want to hear what the headlines were. And these were the top two headlines over a whole weekend. What was going on with beagles in our country and the fact that millennials aren't using the gift cards they've been given. I thought those were the headlines of the new, that was the most important thing to start Monday with. If we existed a hundred years ago, people used to write newspaper articles and that meant it took time for you to digest them and think about them, which means you're much more likely to read about something substantive like the war in Ukraine. But if you have to give sound bites every hour on the hour, it's hard to communicate substantive, thick concepts. And it's becoming more challenging. Generation Z, which is people today who are in high school and below, no longer use Twitter because it requires too much reading. If you don't know, Twitter contains 280 characters per tweet. Instead, right now, the most popular app is TikTok because it's only video. In other words, it's hard to have word ministry in an image culture. But that, that focus is what God calls us to. So number one, honor elders who labor diligently at ministry of the word, preaching and teaching. But now number two, God balances his wisdom. Rebuke elders who refuse to repent. Here we look in God's word in verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, in a moment in verse 20, he's going to say how we remove elders who don't repent. But here in verse 19, he cautions us to be careful about how we would receive an accusation. A charge that's made needs to have two or three witnesses as witnesses to the crime, so to speak. This is taken from the Old Testament. In The law of Moses in Deuteronomy 19, we read that there's supposed to be two or three witnesses. Here's what Deuteronomy 19.15 says. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three shall a charge be established. You notice in the text, Deuteronomy 19.15, they're both witnesses to the thing that they're being charged of. That's exactly what the Bible says in Matthew 18. Jesus says the same thing in the process of church discipline. But let me pause and explain why it matters that charges are not too easily given. R. Kent Hughes was a pastor for years, and here's what he writes. When I was first in ministry, a woman who had recently spent some time in the state mental hospital began attending my college group. She looked deranged, her hair was disheveled, her eyes disengaged, and the poor woman was in ill health. Other than a group meeting, I never had a personal conversation with her. But she began to stalk our home, driving slowly by at all hours. And then she began to tell others that Pastor Hughes is going to leave his wife and marry me. (laughs) Worse, some people actually believed her. How sub-Christian to entertain, much less give credence to such slander. The remedy... Give your leaders the same protection everyone else has. Never listen to gossip about leaders or to a serious accusation if it only comes from one person. Some wisdom in what R. Kent Hughes is saying. I think there may be exceptions to that, but generally speaking, if there aren't two or three that can corroborate something. I know of a friend of our family who graduated from college with great skill and great ability. He became a pastor and was a very faithful man. In his first several years, there was a woman who was attracted to him and made an accusation against him. 
Of course, he was removed from pastoral ministry. And within a short amount of time, she revealed that she had made up the accusation because she felt like she wasn't receiving attention from him. In other words, it was just like Joseph in the Old Testament. And from that accusation, enough was enough. And nothing could ever be the same. All of the prep, all of the calling, all of the preparation gone. But though we must be aware of flimsy and false accusations, we also must hear accusations when they're substantiated. So look in verse 20. On the one hand, don't make an accusation too flimsily. But on the other hand, as for those who persist in sin. This is the standard for all of us. God in his grace works repentance over time. So we're not too quick to move against sin. But when there's time given and time allotted and one will not turn from sin, notice how verse 20 says, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Public rebuke of the leader who is unrepentantly guilty. So though on the one hand we must be cautious to not accuse too quickly, on the other hand, We must not do what we read about in the news far too often, where a well-known preacher or a well-loved speaker was finally brought to light because nobody wanted to do it because they had such regard for him. We must never lack the courage to call out sin, even among God's leaders, who can do great damage to God's people if they are not held accountable. This means that a God-pleasing church has accountability from the top through all through the church, from the elders, through the congregation. There's meaningful membership. Now, verse 21, notice how sober Paul is about this. In the presence of God and in Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you, keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing, this is an important word, from partiality. Well, I've known him or we're friends or no, none of that needs to factor in. It must be what is the truth. So number one is how we honor elders. Number two is how we rebuke elders if necessary. But now number three is how we recognize and affirm godly elders. And look down in verse 22. Do not be hasty in the laying out of hands. Laying out of hands in the Bible is to set someone apart for a specific calling. Do not be hasty in the affirmation of those that are set apart. Nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Leading is such a serious thing that we must not too quickly or too hastily affirm someone and put them into that position of trust. And now verse 23 seems to make little sense as to how it fits here. Let's look at it and then think about that. Verse 23, you might even have it in parentheses in your translation. No longer drink water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, what it says is pretty understandable, right? At home, you may have a filter on your tap water and on your fridge and on your Keurig by the time you get that water. But of course, in the ancient world, none of that was available. And so it was very common to drink water that was dirty, that would make you sick. And so Paul's Paul's encouragement is a very simple one. Include some alcohol to dilute it and clean it. What he's saying is obvious. Why he's saying it here is much more difficult. Every week I try to really study well, and one of the commentators I read actually suggested that we just remove this verse from Scripture, and so I quit reading that commentary. (laughs) 
But why is it here? I mean, we know what it says. Why would he say it now? Now, here's two things to remember in terms of why he would say it now. Second Peter 1 says that no author of Scripture gave their own private thoughts, but they were born by the Holy Spirit. Doesn't that incline us to say it's here on purpose? Also, Peter wrote, um, what Paul has to say is needed, but some of it's hard to understand. Doesn't that incline us to say it's here on purpose, but it may take a minute to understand why, you see? All right, so it's here on purpose, but it may take us a minute to understand why. Let's think. At the end of verse 22, Paul says, don't do something too hastily. Keep yourself pure. Keep yourself from sin. But then he directs a comment, almost sidebar, to Timothy directly. Timothy, in your carefulness to not sin, you need to remember an area that you are sometimes sinful, and that is when you demand what God does not demand. Did you know it's possible for your conscience not only to be too loose, but it's possible for it to be too tight? Timothy's danger then is the religious asceticism that he warned about in chapter 4. Remember in chapter 4 when he talked about those who forbid marriage or forbid certain foods that Paul said, God said those things are good and okay. So as Paul says, keep yourself pure, he warns Timothy because Timothy's danger is to make a man-made standard a biblical standard. So Timothy, don't get drunk, of course. We read that in chapter 3 about elders and deacons, but also don't make a man-made requirement that you should not make. It would be wrong to say that alcohol could not be used medicinally or appropriately. Now, this actually factors into how you identify elders as well, though, doesn't it? Because isn't it easy, on the one hand, to be too restrictive and to forget that we can only bring into office those who satisfy the biblical requirements, but isn't it also possible, on the other hand, to start adding in your own and saying, well, you know, I'm not sure if that brother does enough of what I think he ought to do, or I think he does too much of what I think he shouldn't do. This is so easy to do with elders, right? I know as a pastor, there's always those who say, you visit too much, you visit too little. (laughs) You preach too long, you preach too short. It's just so easy to start adding requirements that the Bible doesn't have. And so Paul's just in a sidebar reminding, hey, wait, but make sure in this whole thing, the scriptures are actually your authority, not even your own extra caution. So verse 22 Keep yourself pure. Now he picks that up in verse 24. This is extremely wise, especially if you're in charge of staffing or hiring for your company. The sins of some people are conspicuous. They're open, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. But so also on the other side, verse 25, so also good works are conspicuous. They're in the open. They're seen. They're observable. But maybe not at first, because even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Don't you see how wise God is here? Verse 22, we should not be too hasty to put hands on. But verse 24 and 25, we should not be too slow to appreciate that character will emerge in God's time. One of my favorite things about Harvard is they have a penchant to put their finger on something that God said several thousand years earlier. And they did that recently in the Harvard Business Review. Well, not too recently, in 2012, in the Harvard Business Review, the author wrote about what he called in his article heading, the dark side of charisma, the dark side of charisma. Here's what he wrote at the beginning. 
Most people think charisma is as vital to leadership as it is to rock stars or TV presenters, and unfortunately, they're right. In the area of multimedia politics, leadership is commonly downgraded to just another form of entertainment, and charisma is indispensable for keeping the audience engaged. However, the short-term benefits of charisma are often neutralized by its long-term consequences. Is that not what God said in 24 and 25? Look at it again. Look at 24. Some people's sins are obvious at first, but others appear later. Some people don't seem to have good works at first, but it won't remain hidden. It's so easy when charisma catches our eye to forget that character will emerge eventually. So back to Harvard. Here was Harvard's recommendation, which is really exactly what God already said. Harvard warns us these four ways. Charisma dilutes judgment. Charm is based on emotional manipulation, and as such, it can trump rational assessment. Number two, charisma is addictive. Leaders capable of charming their followers become addicted to their love, and followers become addicted to the leader's charisma. Number three, charisma disguises psychopaths. That's a strong one. Egocentricity, deceit, manipulativeness, and selfishness are key career advancers. So many leaders rise to the top motivated by their own problems with authority. Hasn't it ever struck you that Jesus called for followers? Number four, charisma fosters collective narcissism. Charisma facilitates ideological self-enhancement. Have you noticed how in our culture we now have tribes? Every tribe has its own group and its own charismatic leader. And so what does Harvard recommend we do? It's, It's eerie how close this is to what the Bible already says. Harvard says, look for hidden talent. There's a universal management paradox, they write, while people most likely to climb the ladder do so because rather than in spite of their poor character traits. And yet we're still reluctant, Harvard writes, to wait. This is exactly what verse 24 and 25 says. Don't be too hasty. Trust that character will emerge. Now in today's text, we do read something sobering. First, we read that God is calling on us to do something that we cannot do unless he powerfully enables us to do it. We're to have this ability of discernment, number one, to honor elders who rule well. Number two, to rebuke elders who refuse to repent. Number three, to recognize and affirm godly elders. Emmanuel, may God enable that to happen. But also this text says something that we almost never talk about in our culture. Would you look in verse 20? This text talks about sin and judgment. Look in verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Fear of what? If you have the NASB, unfortunately it adds fear of sinning, but that's not in the Greek. The Greek just says phobon Echosin, stand in fear. Fear of what? Fear of what? Look in verse 24. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to what? Judgment. Now here's something that our culture never wants to talk about, but the Bible tells us what we need to hear. 
Sin is done by sinners, and sinners face a judge at an appointed day when he judges us. The Bible says this so many times. Paul preached it in Athens in Acts 17. He said, in the past, God has overlooked our ignorance, but he calls everyone now to repent because he has a fixed day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man appointed to judge whom he has resurrected from the dead. So who will be the man who judges everyone living? He's the man who's risen from the dead. He's the man in this text, in verse 18, what he said is quoted as Holy Scripture. In verse 21, we're told to live in his presence. His name is Jesus. What a sobering thought. Judgment. Now, in one sense, our whole culture longs for that because anyone who tries to make their city more just or make their world more just, it's never satisfying enough. There's always someone who slips through the cracks. But when we get upset about that, the world is not as just as it ought to be, then at some point we have to look inwardly and think about, well, what if everything about me was brought to judgment? Numbers twenty-three, thirty-two. be sure your sins will find you out. So what a sobering thing to know that I will be judged. What's the good news then? The same one who's our judge came to be our Savior. 1 Timothy 1 is shocking. It says the law shows us that we're sinners. We rebel against our parents. We live immorally. We talk the wrong way. But then it says this in verse 15. But thank God Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You see, the shocking thing about judgment is that you can be rescued from it. One, one of my friends at church used to say, if I'm going before the judge, then I better have a good lawyer. <laughs> First John 2, 2 says it this way, my little children, if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Hear this this morning. Peter said this in his sermon in Acts. God commanded us to preach that Jesus is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. All the prophets bear witness of his name, but anyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. This morning, remember, we need not fear Jesus as judge when we have him as advocate. Is he yours? Don't leave this morning not knowing that all of your sin is forgiven, all of it is atoned, and every accusation is met by the advocate who points to his nail-pierced hands. What could possibly be said that Christ hasn't already washed? So on the basis of that, through the grace of that, let us follow our king in the way he structures his church. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, thank you, Lord, that there is a judgment bar, and we all know it's coming, which is why our culture has the phrase, don't judge me. And while we try to suppress our pangs of conscience, we only demonstrate that we know we should be judged. So what good news it is to know that no sin could be discovered about us 
that hasn't been paid for by Jesus on the cross. He said, it is finished. There is nothing left to add. He lives victoriously, and he is our one and only needed defense. So, Lord, I pray that we would see the beauty of being washed white as snow. Thank you, Lord, that there is a Savior for sinners. Perhaps someone this morning needs to come and put their faith in Jesus and be saved. Saved from the wrath of God. Saved from the judgment. Saved from guilt. Saved from every accusation. Help them to call on the name of the Lord this morning and be saved. Lord, may that grace that now defines who we are as people, people rescued because someone else took our punishment. May that define the way our hearts humbly follow your word in our church. Lord, please help us as a church to recognize and affirm elders that are set apart by God, gifted by the Holy Spirit, people that when we lay our hands on them, we do so in prayerful dependence that this is who you've brought. May that team of elders encourage one another as some of them focus primarily on preaching and teaching. Others, though gifted there, focus primarily on ruling, administrating, and leading. May that diversity balance well the church, which is a body of diverse parts. I pray also, Lord, that you would prepare us for a day that I hope we don't have to encounter. But should the day come that we must rebuke one who is an elder. Give us the courage for the sake of the purity of Jesus Christ to call sin, sin, so that one may repent, so that we may stand in fear, so that we may ourselves humble ourselves to Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.